Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. Welcome to our 2014 Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. And thank you for joining us as, um, in our remembrance of Dr. King and his legacy. Our theme this year is diversity then versus now, looking at where we've come from, where we are now, and hopefully a look into where we're going. We hope that you gain insight into the work of the trailblazers before us, who paved the way so that we can be a truly welcoming and just nation. My name is Devon Harris, and I work in our Center for Intercultural and International Education Office. Um, and we are going to begin our program with two selections from our Voices in Harmony Gospel Choir. Thank you. 
Thank you, Voices in Harmony. It's amazing to have them back, isn't it? It's my pleasure today to introduce our speaker and to share a little bit about uh, Tony Brown. Many of you know him already. Many, many of you know him. Uh, he was our, he's a, a graduate, excuse me, a 1971 graduate of Goshen College. And more than that, he's got a very extensive bio, which I can read a little bit about. His piecework takes him to political hotspots in Africa, South America, Europe, and Asia. His stirring performance, if you were there last night, you remember that. It connects people across race, language, religion, and culture, and helps them focus on how we're all one in the great family of humanity. But more than that, along with that amazing body of work, I'm proud to say Tony Brown has been a good friend to us here at Goshen College. We work together on different projects, and I've been thrilled to have him as a friend and mentor. And on a personal note, he took very good care of my niece when she was at Goshen, excuse me, at Heston. And so I, for that, I thank you. She needed a lot of help. So it was great. <laughs> and Tony, we are so thrilled to have you here last night, this morning, over the weekend. You were busy, busy. So thank you. Tony Brown. heard a powerful story about a man who stood in his truth such conviction in who he was he would not be moved someone stepped out from the crowd and said are you Martin Luther King he said, yes, I am, and the well-dressed man spit on him. Then the king took out his handkerchief and wiped the hate from his suit, gave it back to the man and said, I believe this belongs to you. I will lift you up and do what I can do. I see your heart, I know your pain. I have been there too. I will hold you high while you do what you have to do. I am clear who is standing here. I believe this belongs to you. I once had a powerful story I used to carry around. I thought it was you all this time that held my spirit down. But now I know the truth of who I came here to be. You are my angel in disguise, not my enemy. So I thank you for the part you played in this dance we had to do. I give you back your own true love. I believe it belongs to you. I will lift you up and do what I can do. I feel your heart, I see your pain. I have been there too. I will hold you high while you do what you have to do. I give you back your freedom now. I believe it belongs to you. I will lift you up and do 
what I can do. I feel your heart, I know your pain. I have been there too. I will hold you high while you do what you have to do. I give you back your own true love. I believe it belongs to you. I am clear as we're standing here. I believe this belongs to Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a delight uh, to be here with you this morning at uh, Goshen College. As a pioneer in international education, Goshen College understands that the skill of relating across the divides of race, culture, and nationality is important and necessary. I perceive here on the campus a genuine interest in creating a more inclusive community. This is the challenge of 21st century higher education in the United States. Your regional focus with emphasis on the Hispanic community is a true sign of your institutional resilience and your interest in making your community more diverse, more inclusive, and more in step and relevant for these changing times. Your interest, uh, as you put it, in having a diverse campus that reflects the diversity of God's creation is commendable, and your intercultural emphasis is a true sign that you are preparing yourselves for the diverse future which lies ahead. I speak today not so much as an expert, but as a fellow collaborator in this exciting paradigm shift that's underway that includes values and celebrates diversity. I am particularly delighted to be here on this special day when we remember the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. His life was a true example of courage and commitment, steadfastness and persistence. We who are interested in bringing in the kingdom and queendom of God have been given a charge to pick up the torch that he passed on to us when he left us so tragically. That torch represents hope, justice, and a sacred respect for humanity and all living things. That torch of freedom, inclusion, love, forgiveness, and reconciliation is now ours to carry and pass on. When I was a freshman at Heston College, I watched the evening news regularly to follow Martin Luther King. I was taken in by his exceptional oratorical ability and his passion for justice. His words often, often moved me. He was convincing and he was able to stir the minds and hearts of many in the country. I idolized Martin Luther King and identified with him on so many levels. In time, he would become the moral conscience of the country. As a result of his moral leadership, then-President John F. Kennedy introduced civil rights legislation that was ultimately pushed through the legislative process by his successor, President Lyndon Johnson. Some believe that it was his shift from civil rights for African Americans to advocating for, poor, for the poor, including black, brown, red, white, and yellow people, as well as speaking out against the Vietnam War that cost him his life. If that is true, we have to wonder how speaking out for the poor and the disinherited and against the terror of war would cost him his life in a country that claims to be Christian. Clearly, King's version of the Christian faith challenged and threatened the status quo and those in high places to live out the true meaning of our democracy, that we are all created equal. If he were here today, he would be speaking out against our failed immigration policies, against the growing gap between the rich and the poor, against the tendency of the American government to intervene in the problems of other countries for their own self-interest, against the spending of billions of dollars to ensure our military superiority in the world, 
against the pressure to rid our country of government entitlements, which ensure quality health care for all and a supportive safety net for our most vulnerable, against the Stand Your Ground law that made it possible to acquit George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin, who was wearing a hoodie, unarmed and carrying a bag of Skittles, heading to his father's home against the gutting of the enforcement portion of the Voting Rights Act, for which so many sacrificed their lives, and against gun violence that has cost us dearly and is a true sign of the deep alienation that has caused many to become numb to feelings and act out in violence with relative ease. With his gift of persuasion, he galvanized the country, creating a grassroots movement for peace, inclusion, and justice. He became a formidable public force in the 1950s and 60s. Remarkably, he was in his 20s and 30s when he was making his mark on our country and on the world. Influenced by the dismantling of colonialism in Africa in the 50s, King led the charge to resist the established protocols which maintained a system that was separate and unequal. He was also influenced by Mahatma Gandhi and his nonviolent movement in India that ultimately ousted the British, who had dominated that land for over a century. That same passion for freedom and justice was again ignited when Nelson Mandela emerged the victor after spending 27 years in a South African prison. As president of South Africa, Mandela used peace and reconciliation to heal the wounds of his country ending the long scourge of apartheid that so unfairly dominated that country's majority population. All of these world-class heroes, Gandhi, King, and Mandela, spent time in prison, but emerged undaunted and more determined. They understood that real strength came from holding on to their dignity and their faith. Their courageous example empowered and boosted the self-esteem of their followers they embraced a morality that loved and embraced the adversary while staying true to the principles of nonviolence, forgiveness, and reconciliation. King's concept of the beloved community was the foundation from which he operated. This foundation was built on cooperation, the inherent worth and dignity of the individual, justice, interdependence, and agape love. In April of 1968, I was a student at Heston College and on choir tour. I had the solo in the song, Go Down Moses, or some, some refer to it as Let My People Go. Moments before the concert began, a choir director, Lowell Byler, informed me that Martin Luther King had been shot and killed. When it was time for me to sing that song, the hall quieted. I could see tears in the eyes of those in the audience. They, they listened and heard this song in a whole new light, and it moved them, and it moved me. There was a real sense in which we, as an African-American people, needed to be set free. We wanted to be let go, freed up from the heavy, long-standing yoke of oppression. I was shocked. I was hurt. I was angry and incredibly disappointed in the American version of democracy. People from around the world and across the country shared my outrage. It was devastating for this 19-year-old young man who was full of hope and who had nothing but the future to consider. I had lost a great hero. Our hopes as a people were dashed, but our determination is strong and our struggle continues. In 1954, Martin Luther King took his first pastorate at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. In December of 1955, Martin Luther King was asked to be the spokesperson for those involved in the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott. He didn't seek it out. It came to him. The African Americans there had had enough of being forced to give up their seats or to sit in the back of the bus. They said, we are not going to ride these buses anymore until conditions change. They said to themselves, we're gonna substitute tired feet 
for tired souls and just walk the streets of Montgomery because we believe that it is more honorable to walk in dignity than to ride in humiliation. As Martin took on the mantle of leadership, he received many letters and phone calls that threatened his life and the life of his wife and his one child at the time. He was incredibly filled with fear and at the end of his rope. Feeling desperate, he turns to God for aid. He says, I bowed down on the side of the kitchen table and I began to talk to the Lord about it. I began to develop a religious experience for myself that I had never had before. Lord, I am here trying to lead the people and feel myself getting weak. I am doing it because I think it is right and I think the cause is right. And now I'm in fear. I can't go before the people like this because if I go before them in fear, they themselves will falter. And so I have to be strong before I go before them. I have tried everything, and now I've come to see that I can't solve this problem by myself. I turn everything over to you. At that moment, something spoke within him, and the message he heard was the following. Stand up for truth. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. And lo, I will be with you, even until the end of the world. That was a huge turning point in Martin Luther King's life. Three months later, King was in a meeting at the First Baptist Church in Montgomery. He noticed that people were running up and down the aisles, delivering messages to each other, but were not talking with him. So he inquired, what's going on? Whatever it is, tell me what's going on. I, I'm prepared to hear it. They looked over at him and said, your home has just been bombed. Fortunately, though, his wife and child were okay. At that moment, he was as calm and peaceful as he had ever been in his life. Why? Because, as he says, three months before, something had happened. A power far greater than any power in this universe had said to me in substance that you are not in this struggle alone. And I can say to you sincerely, my friends, that ever since that day, I have been able to walk the streets of Montgomery with my feet solid to the ground and my head straight to the air, fearing no man because I felt the power of the Almighty God. The days ahead are difficult, and we're going to need something to keep us going. I say to you, go out with the faith that God is with you. Here, King has a mystical experience that takes him into the depths. It was this experience that would give him the courage and the strength to go on. It was his mystical experience that caused him to embrace the world. King's story is useful for us who are engaged in the work of tearing down walls and making a path for freedom, justice, and inclusion. King helps us to understand that diversity and inclusion is not just an idea, but a movement in which all of us must engage if we are to be true to our faith. This movement for freedom and justice that ignited in the 20th century was long overdue. It was understood that this movement could be harmed. It could even be slowed, but it could not be arrested. When thinking about diversity and inclusion, it is important to provide some historical context as a way to understand why diversity and inclusion has been fraught with challenge over the years. I am reminded of the African proverb that states, until lions have their historians, 
tells of the hunt shall always glorify the hunters. Or Irish folk singer and friend Tommy Sands reminded me that in war, the winners write history, the losers write songs. For too long, we have glorified and celebrated the arrival of Christopher Columbus on these shores. And without mindfulness, we ignore the fact that the very name of this continent, America, is named after the Italian explorer Amerigo Vespucci. 500 years of imperialism was more than enough. Columbus's entrance into what the West called the New World marked the beginning of the modern era. His mistreatment of indigenous people in the Americas would give rise to the subordination of such people around the world. The West brought a modern worldview to other parts of the globe that would decimate cultures and rape the land of her resources and use such resources to fill the pockets of the conquerors. The worldview, this worldview focused on difference, separation, and independence, survival of the fittest, and control over nature became dominant themes in this paradigm. The philosophy of us and them, with those who were European from European descent in the West being the superior ones, justified these invasions as we sought to civilize and indoctrinate indigenous people and use them for economic gain. The subordination of peoples in Africa, Australia, North, Central, and South America, parts of Asia and Europe, gives us some idea of the reach and power of the modern worldview. We can, one can see this worldview coming through from the very beginning in the first diary entry of Christopher Columbus after arriving in the Americas. He wrote, they brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things which they exchanged for the glass beads and hawks bells. They willingly traded everything they owned. They were well built with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms and do not know them. For I showed them a sword and they took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. As soon as I arrived in the Indies on the first island which I found, I took some of the natives by force in order that they might learn and might give me information of whatever there is in, this, in these parts. Conquest, control, and domination are the themes here, and they would become the mode of operation all around the world. 18th century European enlightenment had an intense focus on science and the empirical. The unleashing of science as the new truth diminished spiritual explanations for how the world worked. Stemming from the philosopher Descartes' constructed idea of truth, I think, therefore, I am with its dichotomizing and reductionistic thought. This gave rise to empiricism that saw knowledge only as that which could be measured or quantified and detected with the five senses. The scientific knowledge gained from this period served as a catalyst for continued technological development, the Industrial Revolution, the world wars of the 20th century, and so much more. In large measure, it, was profoundly, it has profoundly impacted our educational institutions. The scientific paradigm continues to be held up as the superior method for education and inquiry. This view is preoccupied with the rational, the scientific, and the objective. Such thinking ultimately created a rapidly moving high-tech information revolution that created a seismic shift in the way we live on so many levels today. To give you some perspective, today, 
one Sunday edition of the New York Times has more information in it than a 19th century person received in a lifetime. Today, we cannot live without our technology, and more and more, it is becoming the main way in which we spend our time on Earth. Ironically, with all of this knowledge, our Earth is in peril, weather patterns are shifting, ice is melting, the Earth is drying up in places like Mexico and Australia, certain animals are endangered, our forests are being destroyed, we have been disconnected from nature and from each other. We have forgotten that the earth is the place from which we have come. It is our life, and our right relationship with it depends on our ongoing life. In this regard, the earth, with all of its powers, is bringing us to our knees. All of us are challenged to find a better balance between our time spent with nature and our time spent in cyberspace. Out of a new respect for the sacredness of the earth, we must learn how to live sustainably. Pre-modern ways of living are being retrieved, providing wisdom for how we move forward. Some have described the scientific paradigm as a failed paradigm, but I assert that there are things there that have furthered our civilization and can advance the cause of global solidarity in our efforts to bring us together to save the planet. The postmodern world begins with the emergence of Martin Luther King and the technology of television, which helped to further his cause, bringing with it some exciting changes, leading to, a more, in, leading to more inclusion for the countries disenfranchised. That shift opened the floodgates for African Americans and other people of color to enroll in colleges around the country with federal funds available to support them. Different from the modernist ways of knowing, this postmodern world embraces the idea of multiplicity of truths and realities. Multiplicity has taken hold on so many levels. The changing demographics of this country are but one example. And as these changes occur, we are confronted with new challenges that require new solutions. Writer and futurist Alvin Toffler stated, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. The ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn will be of increasing importance as we shift from the idea of a single truth to the idea of a multiplicity of truths. Exposure to the multiplicity of truths helps us to widen our experiences opening us to other cultural realities to enrich and change our lives. Today, out of a population of 300 million in the United States, 100 million are people of color. 21% of them live in California. 12% of them live in Texas. People of color outnumber European Americans in four states, California, Texas, New Mexico, and Hawaii plus the District of Columbia. 44 million Hispanics live in this country and they are the fastest growing group. 40 million African Americans. 15 million Americans are Asian and this group is also growing. By the year 2050, Hispanics will make up one quarter of the US population. And by that time, only half of all Americans will be, will be European Americans compared to the present 66%. We must also include women and the LGBT community who are also a part of our diversity and find room for these voices to enrich and expand our understanding of the human experience. Yes, diversity for the 21st century includes and goes beyond race. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu reminds us, the God who existed before religion counts on you to make the oneness of the human family known and celebrated. We must find the ways to celebrate these demographic changes, for they offer the opportunity to enrich our nation 
and they challenge us to work anew toward this country's motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. What do these demographic changes mean for the educational enterprise and for students who will enter a multi-ethnic workforce? What are the implications of these changes for our life together as a nation and how will it affect our national identity? What is clear is that we will no longer be able to stay away from people who are different from ourselves. Those who are educated will have an understanding that we belong to the whole world. We belong to each other. We are one. This requires engagement on the part of all of us with those culturally different from ourselves. This kind of engagement is not limited to a term of service, a work project, or an SST experience. It is a lifestyle for the 21st century. The academic community is in a state of change regarding the modernist view of education, which privileges the objective and holds the truth manifest itself in very specific, empirical, and quantifiable ways. Education, as it has been traditionally known, elevates classical form as the highest and most worthy. At the same time, there is a new wave of thinking in education that is gaining momentum and is reflective of these changing times that seeks to privilege new understandings of learning, that honors the subjective experience and the multiple ways to learn. Some in academia, of course, are naturally resisting change, struggling to make the transition from modernist ways of knowing to more contemporary, multiplicitous and integrative ways of knowing. Collaborative learning, service learning, and the privileging of the subjective narrative and the many truths found therein are valuable ways to know and learn. Classrooms where the professor is smaller in stature and no longer the all-knowing expert, but rather a collaborator, where the traditional lecture is minimized and the voices of the students are encouraged in collaborative, hands-on exchange. Efforts to teach from a multiplicity of perspectives which expand, connect, and open up rather than reduce, separate, and close down is what the future will demand. Having diverse classrooms can offer this multiplicity of perspective. Education that values both left and right brain thinking, considering them equal and valuable ways to teach and know. Education that includes mentoring and the cultivation of supportive relationships among students, faculty, staff, and administration. Writer and cultural anthropologist Mary Catherine Bateson says it well when she says, most higher education is devoted to affirming the traditions and origins of an existing elite and transmitting them to new members. This flies in the face of where we must go if we are to be inclusive and educationally relevant in these exciting and changing times. In Susan Fisher Miller's Goshen College History, Culture for Service, Your Centennial History, reference is made to a statement in 1971 by the then Black Student Union President, Everett Ursery, who was here with me and uh, who I knew. He said, being, being on a white campus is like what white kids go through when they are on SST. In fact, we are the ones on SST suffering greatly from cultural shock. Most white kids can leave Haiti or any other country and come home. But for us, we must always feel like SSTers. Yes, those are some wise words from a student. There were about 75 African-American students enrolled at the time, as I recall. The overall uh, enrollment was about 1,200. Then there was no multicultural center on the campus. The administration was very pleased to have students of color on the campus, but assimilation was the goal. The preservation of the dominant campus culture was most important. At that time, the college was first and foremost a Mennonite college with a well-honed tradition 
that had its roots in a Swiss-German-American Mennonite ethos. Those who were not Mennonite were welcomed guests. There was no question about the genuine nature of that welcome, and many positive relationships were created that have endured. That approach was common at small Christian colleges and campuses and still is today. There were no significant numbers of black faculty to support these students. There was no sense of an African-American cultural ethos on the campus. Creating a welcoming space for all students is key. This has implications for all campus activities, for curriculum, and for the performing arts. Catholic priest Richard Rohrer made a very wise statement. It is learning the questions slowly and attentively that we are drawn into the depth of things and frankly, into the sadness of things and into compassion. I raise here a few questions for consideration that I think all of us in higher education will need to ask as we work to create not only a diverse campus, but an inclusive one. It is not possible to have a multicultural campus if it is not an inclusive campus. Where are the places on campus where artistic expressions of subordinate members are expressed to the gathered campus community? What is the extent and frequency of that expression in the constituency, surrounding community, and the campus. Should students of other faiths have a designated place where they can engage in their spiritual practices? How can those from other Christian denominations have a, play, have a voice, and how might we learn from their perspectives in open, respectful dialogue? How can our food services attend to the dietary concerns of those who are vegan, vegetarian, or gluten-free? How are students selected for campus jobs? What processes are in place to ensure fair hiring practices? Where in the institution are professional people of color represented? Faculty, staff, administration. Is there more than one or two represented at the various levels? Who and how many of them are involved at the institutional policy-making level? What are the barriers for non-traditional students that, pre that prevent them from fully entering into campus life? How are the various Heritage Months celebrated in the classroom and at college-related events? What hardwired institutional systems are in place to new students and to new and veteran faculty and staff and administration for ongoing training and development of common language on matters related to diversity and inclusion. How can diversity and inclusion concerns find their way into the organizational center, involving representatives from academic departments, all top-level administrators, staff, and the various categories of students, so that all take ownership and involvement in this important work? Such efforts have a real implications for retention and admissions. There is no cultural prerequisite for following Jesus. We know that the early church came from every tribe and every nation. We know that the Anabaptist martyrs did not die to ensure the perpetuation of a German, Dutch, or Swiss culture. We know that shoe fly pie or a particular Swiss or Dutch or German last name, or the preference for four-part a cappella singing, which I have to say I dearly love, does not make one suitable for entrance into the community of believers. Other cultural forms must have a voice and influence how a college operates as an inclusive community. Former President John F. Kennedy and a in a speech uh, that he gave at American University on Peace, said it well. We can help make the world safe for diversity, for in the final analysis, we all inhabit this small planet. 
We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. Listening to each other's stories offers promise for sustaining and rebuilding community and goodwill. Separating ourselves from dogma and judgment opens us to the multiplicity of experiences all around us. This kind of listening can bring down walls which have heretofore divided us. Our own story is merely one among so many others. We are a multicultural country, and we all must sit at the table of inclusion to shape this new and exciting future. Ronald Takagi, in his book, A Different Mirror, speaks to the wonderful diversity we have in this country when he writes, the Bing cherry was developed by an early Chinese immigrant named Ah Bing. American Indians were growing corn, tomatoes, and tobacco long before the arrival of Columbus. The term okay comes from the Choctaw word okay, which means it is so. The term Yankee comes from Indian, term, from Indian terms for the British. Jazz and rock have African-American origins. American cowboys learned herding skills from Mexicans, and an appropriated term such as lasso from lazo, stampede from estampida. Songs like God Bless America, Easter Parade, and White Christmas were written by Jewish immigrant Irving Berlin. We have nothing to fear but fear of our own diversity. We are all challenged as we make this exciting shift, but we are equal to that challenge. May your life here as a community of faith bring hope, excitement, and a greater degree of inclusion as you prepare for the diverse world that is now. May we all be motivated by an encounter with God and led by the Spirit, which we cannot see nor measure, embracing the earth and embracing others to create a better day. Allow yourself to dance. Accept pre-modern wisdom. Open yourself to mystery. Be eager for mysticism. Honor diversity and mix it into your life. Understand that rigid boundaries are fading and place yourself within the context of inclusive community. Speak the words of freedom. Do the deeds of justice. Share the gift of love. Thank you very much. Would you sing a song with me? Uh, it's called Swimming to the Other Side, and I'll sing the, uh, the, the chorus through so you get some idea of how it goes, and then we'll just sing it together. We are living the great big dipper. We are washed by the very same rain. We are swimming in the stream together. Some in power and some in pain. Excuse me. I have a cold. Fortunately, I didn't do that last night. Here we go. Let's start over. We are living beneath a great big dipper. We are washed by the very same rain. We are swimming in the stream together. Some in power and some in we can worship this ground we walk on, cherishing the beings that we live beside. Loving spirits will live forever. We're all swimming to the other side. Let's try that. We are living in the great big dipper. We are washed by the very same rain. We are swimming. 